the transmitter. All right, this is Synaptic. It's the first episode. You're at the beginning of it, actually, my very first one. This podcast is put out by Spectrum, and it is going to explore the people, the science, and the challenges of autism research, and to an extent, the greater neuroscience space. I'm the host of this. My name is Brady Huggett. And all episodes will be dropped into this feed, and you can subscribe to it wherever you find podcasts, Google, Apple, Spotify, or in your favorite podcast player app. These will also be posted and archived on the Spectrum homepage if you prefer to listen there. Okay, now for this episode, let's start. In the second half of October, I flew out to the Los Angeles International Airport, also called LAX. And here's some background. The airport was first established after World War I, and back then it was just this small collection of private airfields that were trying to meet the growing demand, which is mostly hobbyists and enthusiasts who are interested in flying. But in 1928, Los Angeles city leadership selected this bean and barley field that was located to the south of the city for an official airport. It was 640 acres, and at first they called it Mines Field, named after a real estate developer, until it was officially designated the Los Angeles Municipal Airport in 1930. And it has been growing ever since. After World War II, four passenger airlines, that's TWA, American United, and Western, began commercial operations there, and jet service began in 1959. And by 1961, the airport had four runways. And then they opened Terminal 1 in 1984, and the Tom Bradley Terminal opened in 1989. And by last year, in 2022, LAX was hosting more than 63 million passengers annually. And in October, the month that I flew there, more than 46,000 planes took off and landed. So that is LAX, this airport that is located in a neighborhood called Westchester. And that is the neighborhood where Kathy Lord grew up, which is why I'm, I'm telling you all this. Kathy Lord is our first guest, or Catherine Lord, if you'd like to be official. She grew up right next to the Los Angeles airport. And we talk about that in this interview. And we also talked about her family lineage and the way stations of her long career, including Minnesota, and why she had such a tough time there. And of course, we talked about autism diagnosis and the importance of it, and whether that's for families or for autistic people themselves. And we talked about the future of autism research and what it might hold. All that is coming up in the next hour. So anyway, it was a warm, sunny day in L.A. when I visited her. Uh, she lives on a nice side street. It's got trees on it. These homes have trim little lawns. And uh, because we were nearing Halloween at the time, Kathy had a sort of Day of the Dead wreath on her front door, and a nod to the season, I suppose. In all honesty, with the coordinating emails between her and her assistant and myself, I think she forgot I was coming at that specific hour to her house. I knocked on the door and she said, oh my gosh, is that now? And uh, But she could not have been any more gracious. You know, she let me in, introduced me to her husband, and then she and I sort of retreated to a side room where I could set up microphones. Now, part of the risk of doing recordings in the field is that you cannot fully control the environment. And I had to stop and close some windows and shut off some lighting that was making a buzzing sound after we'd started. And you'll hear that. You'll hear me pause the tape and do that in the interview. But we had a great talk. Kathy was as friendly and as open as everyone says she is. That's partly why I wanted to interview her, because 
you know, she's considered to be such a nice, kind person. But mainly it's because Kathy is viewed as a kind of living matriarch of the autism research field. Her shadow is very long in this space, and she seemed like a great person to launch this show with. So let's pick the interview up here, where I'm chatting with Kathy about an extended family member of mine, whom she diagnosed with autism many years ago. So this is it, Synaptic, Episode 1, with Kathy Lord, starting right now. Oh, Booker. I for love a, Booker. Right. You were with him for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. How is Booker? He's great. He's in college. He is. He's... Oh, good. Where? Uh, I can't remember the name of the school. He's st- it's in New York. Uh-huh. Um, he's about 6'1". Oh, my gosh. Um, studying Spanish. Yeah. It's His amazing. Spanish is incredible. Yeah. His Spanish is unreal. I mean, that's the... Oh, that is so cool. Yeah. And so his mom wanted me to tell you... Oh, uh, yes. Say hello. And oh, I would love to hear about Booker. She said you're one of her favorite people, so... I love Booker. Yeah. He's a great... He, for a while, he was sending me little video clips of the uh, subways. (laughs) He still does (laughs) that. he still... Yeah. I was thinking about him the other day because we had long discussions about what do you have to do if you really want to drive a subway be a subway driver so I learned I mean I was like I better learn about this because for a kid who doesn't want to drive cars and doesn't want to do engineering I was just like what do they have to do they do they have to have a license to drive a truck first first and then you try out to be the like subway driver so that's like a class four or something yeah it is yep so we did discuss that he did not believe me but I was just He was like, asking you what it took to... Well, I was. he was talking constantly about this is what I want to do. I don't need to do this. I don't need to do that because that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a subway driver. Uh-huh. And I was like, well, let's just learn a little bit. I mean, I learned. I didn't know. What do yeah. you have to do to drive a subway? I didn't know either. I still... Um, uh, uh, I don't think he's probably going to be a subway driver, but his, it's great that he's in college and he's yeah. such a, oh, he's such a smart, charming... Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, yes. Okay. So that's how. Wow. So I, I did not know that you'd actually move back to UCI. I started yeah. looking it up. And yeah. Um, why, why did you? Why did you make the move? It came out because my daughter's here with the uh-huh. two other kids, and so she had. We came to New York because both of our adult children were there. Yep. And it really looked like they were going to stay there, but my daughter was married to a musician who said he would never leave New York, and then he graduated from Yale with a sort of equivalent of a PhD and got recruited to USC. And he decided it would be really nice to have a salary. Yeah. He's a composer. Yeah. So they came and so they were here and then they got divorced. So she was here with two kids. So we decided we would follow her and my husband retired. So your daughter, is she artistic? No, she's a physician. Uh-huh. You know, she's actually, she's pretty musical, but she's, She's a physician, so she's in public health. Uh-huh, okay. And so, your son's in film. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Okay. So But can can you but were you born here? You yes, born in the I was born here. In in, in, in Los LA. Angeles. Oh, oh. Yeah. I grew up here. I went to Santa Cruz first year and then came back to UCLA. So I was in at UCLA until I was twenty and yeah. then I then I hadn't lived here since. Right, since you left. Yeah. But why, why were you here? What was your family's history that you were born and raised in L.A.? Yeah, they were, both of my parents were born here. So their parents both moved here during the Depression uh-huh. to work, to find some jobs. So they so, left 
Yeah, my grandparents, my they came. My grandma, my grandparents were from New Mexico, uh-huh. but my grandmother was born in Prince Edward Island, and her family immigrated when there was a potato famine <laughs> to New Mexico, which seems absolutely amazing. And then she and my grandfather got married right after World War One and came out here because they were actually during the Depression. The po- there was more work. The potato famine was in Prince Edward Island. Yeah, Is, yeah. What's the so are they? Is she French Canadian? She's no, they're um, actually Scottish. 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 Uh-huh. So they had come from Scotland to Prince Edward Island. Okay. And my other, the other side of the family is um, half Eastern European Jews who converted to Catholicism at some point, and like uh, Irish. Oh. So they were my grand my. Yeah, I guess my grandfather, I never knew him, was a train conductor. So they were from Chicago, but he got out here and thought this was wonderful, so they moved out here. He came out for some trip or whatever, yeah. fell in love with it. Yeah, on the okay. train. So, so the, your background is Scottish, Irish, Jewish, yeah. all mixed up in there. Yeah. And, and your grandparents, uh, yeah, your grandparents Yeah. pushed west during the Depression, Yeah, you said. both sets. Okay, yeah. but that's not because they were just no, were pushing were, west to find work. Yeah. They yeah. did, and then yeah. and so they settled here, and then my parents were both born here. Wow! So I where know, did you where did you grow up? What part of L.A.? Um, I grew up in Westchester. Do you know where that is? By no. by the airport. Okay. It my t- my our town was like eaten away by LAX, which used to be tiny, and yeah. it got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. It was awful, actually. I mean, it's. I go back there and think. And when I went to a high school of three, I, we had over a thousand students in my graduating class all white we had one asian child one eight one jewish boy um um so it was but but the school was four thousand kids or something yeah wow yeah it was grim i mean it was run by it what was basically a sorority of it was run by the football team which was very powerful and that but who was silent really (laughs) and then the girls there was like a there were clubs and so i knocked myself out to get into the beautiful girls club as opposed to the smart or nice girls club. I was determined I was not going to be nice or 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 smart. <laughs> I mean it was That didn't awful. work out for you though. No, You're both of those things. No, but I I tried really hard. <laughs> did you get in? I did get in because I was the star of the drama. Aha. Uh-huh. So you were into drama in high school. I love drama. Well, but when you say the high school was grim, or the or the neighborhood was grim, yeah. are you saying it was like impoverished, or you just didn't no, enjoy your time? No, it was not impoverished. It was my parents were teachers, so we were the poorest people on this street. Uh-huh. But it was not impoverished. People came back with the GI Bill, and my parents bought a house. My dad, my dad was from a family with Huntington's disease. Uh-huh. So they were, his dad died from suicide when he was 12. His mother got progressively ill. His grandmother lived in the, in the attic and was quite mentally ill from Huntington's disease. So he was from a very horrible family. So he was really from poverty. And my, my other grandparents were very straight arrow, but did not have a lot of money. I mean... So, I mean, I'm struck by this concept of the grandmother having Huntington's and left in the attic. That's yeah. A, that is a... Yeah. I mean, healthcare has come... Healthcare's not perfect by any stretch, but yeah. we've come a long way from that. Yeah, we have. I mean, it was it was awful. I mean, she ended up in the state hospital. Yeah. It was where she died. Both of them did. But the, they, for a long time, tried to keep her there. This so. is your grandfather we're talking this about? This is my great-grandmother. 
Yeah, great grandmother. So your grandfather grew up with his his grandmother in my my father grew up with his grandmother in the attic. Right, father. Yes. So that must have Yeah. It was bad. Yeah. I mean both of my parents actually. My mother's uh grandmother came to visit from New Mexico, broke her hip and never left. Also, <laughs> I know. So it's I mean it's it, I mean I think what they experienced was poverty yeah. and what happened and people tried to I mean her grandmother lived she and her grandmother shared the same bedroom for years until eventually she ended up in this also in the state hospital. <laughs> your like, mother's mother's My ended up. mother's mother. So yeah. your your father's mother and your mother's mother both ended up in the state hospital. Yep. Yeah. One for a Huntington's and one for a broken hip that well, led to a... Well, broken hip and then I think dementia a, a sort d- of. decline yeah. of sorts. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, so you're, you're, you're growing up in this house um, yeah. in a nice neighborhood, it sounds yeah. like, but you're not enjoying high school. You're, you're yeah. kind of struggling to fit in, which it sounds like you did. Yeah. Maybe drama was your saving grace. I tried really hard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had nice friends. My, the beautiful girls were, were actually quite nice. Yeah. But I, it was just, now I look back on it and think, that is so horrible. It's so horrible. Oh, man. But it Ugh. was, you were, you did, yeah. when you left high school, were you like, thank God that's over? Or you, Yeah, you I mean, it was also 1968. Yeah. So it was, I was very liberal. Oh, also, the neighborhood was completely Republican, completely conservative. Was it Catholic? A lot of Catholics, but also Catholics, Mormons, and Protestants. Oh, okay. You know, so it was, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't sort of what you see today, but it was, it was absolutely conservative. So my brother and I, my brother was a rock musician eventually, but my brother and I were like the two liberals of the high school. We were like the only, I mean, we could have had a Democratic club. Just, just the, the two, two of you. us. Yeah. And I th- I mean, there were other kids beginning to be sort of hippies. I was still, I'm behaviorally quite conservative. And it's like, I'm just, I was not into drugs or, I mean, I love the music and my brother's music, but otherwise I was, I'm just not wild at all. So I was really trying to figure out like, how do you be liberal, but not wild? Yeah. And, and and then I went to Santa Cruz and I was actually mortified because when I got to Santa, I mean, my parents wouldn't let me go to Berkeley. My, I you went wanted to, to. I wanted to go to Berkeley. My parents said, absolutely not. I mean, I should have just said, too bad. <laughs> but I, that would not have occurred to me. Yeah, went to Santa Cruz. And then Santa Cruz had a lot of kids from the East Coast who were very liberal. Um, and I was like, oh my God, they're burning their draft card. You know, I mean... You know, and these kids had cars and money. Yeah. I'd never been around anybody like that. I mean, I'd been around Westchester, which had young, you know, people that were really going, like almost everyone went to college, but on the whole, probably one kid went, one kid went to Yale, one kid went to Carnegie Mellon, one kid went to Wellesley. And then uh, very few people even went to UCLA. They went to Cal State Long Beach or, you know, I mean, people literally, like my parents tried very hard to get me to go to a junior college Uh because they felt like the teachers would be better, which is maybe possible, but they just didn't have any sense of what it was like to be in a more like science oriented community. None. Can I do one thing? Sure. Um, Hold on, I'm gonna pause this. That's much much quieter. Yeah. So I'm I'm struck by this 
you and your so your your parents were sort of conservative as well. It sounds like. Yeah. Well, no, they were politically liberal, actually, absolutely, completely Democrats in favor of unions. All that. Uh, all that. I mean, I think they recognized both. My dad recognized what horrible circumstances he came from, and the only reason he went to college was the GI Bill. Right. So oh, he was he, in the service. He was. Yeah. Oh. So he was in the he was in the Merchant Marine and then the Army. So he was, and he had been a conscious object, conscientious objector to World War II. Whoa, he was ahead of his times. I know. It was, um, and then, so he was very, he was the editor of his high school newspaper, very liberal. A conscientious objector got, uh, granted it, I don't know on what basis, but then went in the Merchant Marine because he wanted to do something. And then he realized that he was manning boats that were yeah. carrying ammunition yeah. and just thought, this is ridiculous. I'm wrong. So joined the army. So he came back from the army. Meaning, meaning he thought, well, I'm not, I, I'm already part of the war effort. Yeah. If I'm marching, I might as well go in the army. Yeah. Okay. So Interesting. He was also very sick of boats at that point, uh-huh. but then of course got in the army and got put on a boat because that's how he knew <laughs> knew what to do. Yeah. <laughs> so he, so they were, and my mother would have probably gone along with whatever my father said, and my grandparents were like union. My grandfather yeah. was a printer. Yeah. So. I think they were quite liberal, but behaviorally very conservative. I mean, we could have lived in rural Iowa for what we did in Los Angeles. Yeah. You know, they just didn't do, you know, didn't do much. They, yeah, so, so they weren't like outspoken about it. They weren't no. politically active, although their politics leaned yeah. left, you're saying. Yeah. So, but, so you're in this high school, which is sort of conservative, and it's ruled by the football team and this yeah. cliquish <laughs> group of women or young girls. Yeah. But you're in drama, and your your brothers. There's just the two of you. No, there's a sister too. So she converted. It's a long story, but my sister was was very nice. My sister was quiet, and my brother converted to Mormonism. Your brother did. Yes, briefly, when he had a Mormon girlfriend. So uh-huh. he was very wild in high school, and thus like star rock musician of our high of our school. He's two years young. He was two years younger. He got a Mormon girlfriend, converted to Mormonism, brought my sister, who is two years younger than him, into Mormonism. But not you. And not me. No, I was, by that time, I was, I couldn't have been a Mormon. But he, <laughs> he did that, and then he, eventually the girlfriend broke up with him, and he got sick of being like the token rock musician Mormon. And so he left the Mormon church, but my sister stayed in. So she was very well, well behaved. But my brother and I were more the troublemakers. Was she a Mormon for life, your sister? Yeah, she she did. She passed away a few years ago, but she has five kids and... Lived in the church. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Did your your brother become a musician in life? Yes, he did. So he was... He did guitar lessons, played in a band that never made very much money, but played in a band. And, well, that's... Yeah. That's his career, right? Yeah. Okay. So when you were going to college, did you? Ha- I mean, was it you were thinking about drama, or what were you thinking about doing? I didn't know. Oh, no, I think I got from my parents that that is not a good. That is a hard life. Yeah. So I wanted to do something stable, but my I didn't want to be a teacher. I saw, I was in and out of classrooms my whole life with my parents being teachers, and I was like, this is just too restraining. So originally, I wanted to be a neurosurgeon, actually, but. I, I mean, I grew up, I'm one of the last vestiges of, like, girls don't do that. Uh-huh. You know, it would be from everyone I got that what a waste of time to train you to be Because you're never going to be that. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. actually, I'm pretty clumsy, so you would not really want me to be a neurosurgeon. <laughs> but at the time, I didn't. 
But do you know what, know why why that interested you? I think I was interested in the brain. I was yeah. interested in how yeah. people function. Yeah. And and why we do what we do and what causes it. I, I mean, I really know very little about what causes it on a basic level, but that's sort of where I started. Yeah. So, I. I that I sort of started. I didn't when I, by the time I started college, I really thought actually I went to Santa Cruz in Cal College, which is the humanities college. Uh-huh. I thought I think I want to be a psychologist, but it was sort of a new field, but I want to learn everything about literature and art before I become a psychologist. Uh-huh. So, I had a miserable year <laughs> at Santa Cruz because I just never I love to read, and I had no idea what people do when they're really serious academics about like reading and materials. And so, I, and I'd never been around highly verbal people, like people who really were very articulate and could really talk. That was foreign um, to you. Yeah, and absolutely. And did you feel, you felt I out felt, of place? Yes, I felt, I mean, I went through my first term without saying a word really? in my seminar, which was very out of character for be, be, me. Because... Because why? Because you felt, um, well, you felt they would judge you for the way yeah, you spoke? Yeah, I just, I think I felt like I couldn't keep up with them. Yeah. And, and also, I hadn't been around a lot of people that talked to impress other people. So there was that sort of going on. But but it was more just they were so quick huh. and so verbal. And I was in, you know, Cal College, which is a, this combination of humanities and arts and writing. And, and that's who was in it. and. Yeah. I thought, oh, I'll be one of those people for a while, even though I don't want to do it forever. And then I was like, oh my gosh, I can't keep up with them. Yeah. I mean, it was really interesting to see. So um, is that why you transferred? So I, then I came back, well, that and a boyfriend. But oh. I came back, I was like, this is just not the place for me. And also because it was 1968. And so the the politics, even though when I came back here, there was, I mean, we had Reagan coming into UCLA and, but it was much more, it was, it was less tied to sort of, um, absolute actions, you know, like burning your draft card or. So you're saying that Santa Cruz was more politically active than UCLA was. Well, it was just different because UCLA was the, I mean, there were lots of students and we marched and we had long discussions like, were we willing to be arrested? We were not arrested. I mean, no one was arrested, but we all had marches, but we weren't as flamboyant about it. As, you know, there's a lot going on at that time. Were the march strictly anti-war or was the whole, you know, this was gay rights, feminist rights, this all kind of coming together in the 60s? It was pretty much, at that point, it was the war. It was the war. You know, it was the the feminism was beginning, but didn't, hadn't actually really hadn't hit UCLA, I think, even by the time I left. Yeah. You know, I mean, people were beginning to talk about it, but not much. Hmm. I mean, it was just such a crazy time to go to college. I'm sure professors who would you know they would say well I'm not going to teach or I am going to teach or you know because of the like we had National Guard troops they brought in National Guard troops in buses that sat in sat around the UCLA and people took over buildings I mean I didn't do that but we did have like protests so the so, guard was there as a constant presence just in case a protest got out of hand. Yeah, just in case. or they were, there were people who took over the administration building, so they were trying to figure out what to do to get them So out. that actually happened first, and then yeah. the guard came in. Yeah. Okay. And meanwhile, you're trying to go to class. And yeah. All this. 
Yeah. Yep. Trying to learn. So this perception <laughs> sort of feels like this sort of seems um, consistent with what you already told me. But you were aligned with those people, but you were not going to be at the front of the group. Yes, right? yeah. that is absolutely true. Yeah. I mean, I I am not. I'm not a. It's you know I'm not someone that wants to lead a big group. I want to lead a little group. Yeah. <laughs> a little group. I love my lab. <laughs> But not a hundred people or a yeah. thousand people or thirty-two thousand people. So when you're in and now at UCLA, you've sort of given up on trying to take in all the art and literature as a base. You're like, now I'm just going to study psychology. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You had so, three years to do that, basically. I did. Yeah. 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 So what did you learn? What did you? So I, I mean, I learned a lot. I mean, I was very dismissive of a lot of it because I was in huge classes, but I learned a lot of things. You know, so I learned perception and physiological psychology and social psychology. I mean, the nice thing about the quarter system, which is also the bad thing, is it's 10 weeks mm -hmm. and you do so many things. So I did a lot of psychology. Um, I worked for Lovas, you know. Right. So I wor started, I, you know, was like a student volunteer and I had two autistic kids that I saw and I just, I, I took his class unintentionally, actually. I'd, I signed up for his class, which was theoretically on developmental psychology, but turned out to be on ABA. And he was very charismatic, and he was convinced this was going to change the world. And so, and he had very explicit standards of what you had to learn to do. So I was like, I'm going to do this. So I learned to do that, and then I did it for a couple of years. And then I also worked with another professor who did compl complicated statistics, who was also interested in sort of psychopathology. And so that was really nice because he was so thrilled to have someone who liked math. Yeah, you know? which and you did. I, I did, although yeah. I didn't have a lot of math. I just liked it. And yeah. so I took extra statistics classes and worked with, he had a postdoc who barely spoke English. So... I was like a good in-between person. You, you, do you like math because of the, you know, versus essays or art? I mean, math gives you a concrete answer. It's right or it's wrong. That idea? I don't know. No, I think I just like numbers. Yeah. And I like, I like the fact that you can go different places with numbers. I mean, that you can move around and you can, I like statistics. I mean, now I'm terrible, but I, for a while I was very interested in statistics and just the fact that you can use it to figure things out, and so that and tell you things you not you wouldn't necessarily know. Yeah, right. And so I think I always liked that. Yeah. I and mean, I liked algebra, and I liked geometric proofs, and yeah, there's like an element of discovery to math. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you finished, I think, seventy one with a psychology degree. Yeah, yeah. And what were you thinking of doing then? You. I wanted to be a psychologist. I applied to grad school. I applied in developmental and clinical, and then I went, uh, and then I got into Harvard. Right. They had had a clinical program, but it just decided they were not going to get, they were going to give up their APA accreditation. And so they divided up the clinical courses, but I was so enthralled at getting into Harvard, I went anyway. Yeah, well, who wouldn't? <laughs> yeah, it was a, I mean, and I really liked the person who contacted me, his name was Marshall Haith. He was actually a researcher who studied infants. And what, I, what I'd sort of come out of after working with Lovas was these behavioral principles don't work. <laughs> I mean, they, they really, I mean, in the end, sometimes they do work. But I had two very, very different kids. 
and one of the they were kids brought out of an institution yeah and one of them just was ahead of me the whole way i was trying to teach him things that he already knew and i didn't realize he already knew these things he just wasn't doing them because he had been institutionalized uh-huh. And then I was trying to teach a, a little boy who didn't talk, and we were doing sound imitation, and he didn't understand it. And so it was really a, a waste of time, and I was trying to figure out with this little kid, well, I'm, he's stuck with me for an hour a day, what are we going to do? So we did other things, which re- research-wise is horrible. But just well, you mean for your results? Yes, yes. For the results was terrible. But I taught him. He liked water, and I taught him to wash his hands, and I taught him to get a towel out of the, you know, towel thing in the bathroom, and so we could hang on, you know, and then go back and try to say ba. Huh. So I came out of that saying, "Wow, we need to know something else. We need to know because, what's going on." Because you had these two almost opposites you had yeah. one who was far, so far ahead of you and the other that you were sort of almost like trying to teach them anything right so you're like these basic principles that we've been that have been laid down that we're going to use do not apply on an individual basis right yeah right okay. and the, i mean and really the principles i mean i ended up years later i ended up teaching a preschool class for kids it was right when idea first came out which is the right to education yeah so it was in vermont and these kids in rural from Vermont who had never gone to school and I ended up teaching it just because the teacher I was supposed to be the psychologist the teacher didn't show up so I had to make sense out of what are we going to do with these kids <laughs> and then I was pretty behavioral but I think what I what I was looking for I did find in graduate school which was development and yeah. the idea of where are you what at an individual basis and then let's go the next step up and let's not just apply things. Got it. So this this is why you start leaning toward diagnosis. Yeah. Because you have to figure out each child individually before you can lay down some sort of plan. Right. And that that's was your own thinking in your PhD program. Yeah, I don't know that I'd even I mean I mean I think that I I don't think I called it diagnosis at that point. I think but I think that my idea was you have to see the kid and you have to put that information into something so that you can make sense out of it and then make make decisions about what are you going to do next. Uh-huh. And that was the case for the kids in my class. I certainly, thinking back of the kids that I worked with in doing ABA, it would have been a lot better to do that. And then going forward, I think that I, I went to teach as an intern and teach the thing that teach taught me was we did we did that somewhat more systematically the idea of what like what are strengths and weaknesses what are emerge and teach they called them emerging skills so what is what is a solid skill that a kid can absolutely do what is emerging so he can almost do it mm-hmm. and what do we do to help them so that we can think about that and then the other component was parents right. so at teach the whole point initially was parents are co-therapists and even though I don't love the idea of like calling them co-therapists parents are critical and so you need to figure out what does the parent need yeah and well the parents are critical because they spend the most time with the children they do and what are they thinking and if you just come in from you know another planet it's this is not going to help them teach also now tell me where I'm wrong but you know for the parents it helped them understand that um 
if we're working with this child, you also need to help lay out expectations for the day. Yeah. Um, so that yeah. the whole thing is more holistic in that way. Yes, yeah. absolutely. It's like, how do you make the world make sense for yeah. the kid? And so that was something I had never thought about. And so it was like, wait a minute, you know, this kid doesn't know if we're going to be doing this forever <laughs> or for two minutes. He doesn't know if I do this, then this is going to happen. And so, and that is sort of, that is behavioral, but it's from a sort of, more cognitive point of view and that was just earth shattering to me um, was this idea of like I can help this child know what's going to happen and then he can make choices or she can make choices if they have some idea of what their choices are so you I think you're you graduate with your PhD in 76 is that right yeah yeah and and then what I think maybe you did um an internship at Chapel Hill yeah yeah that that's when I went to teach okay right okay and when that was finished, yep. you were still not fully... I'm trying to remember when your ADOS paper came out. Um, yeah, that 89. was not... Yeah, I wasn't in the ADOS at that point. That was... So at that point, we, my husband was teaching at Dartmouth. They did not want me. They did not want to... They had one woman professor, and they were like, that's enough. So we honestly, left. They, yeah, they honestly, honestly said that? Like, honestly, we can't have another woman in the... Eventually, they said there are nine wives who have PhDs in psychology, who are married to Dartmouth faculty, we would divide, maybe we could divide up a position among the wives. I was like, I mean, at that point I was like- Among the nine wives? Yeah, it was so, I mean, it was like, you know, the six wives, it was just- And these these wives would collectively equal yeah, one position. One person, yeah. I mean, you wouldn't believe this stuff if somebody I know, would you, you wouldn't believe it now, but it- Oh my God. It happened. So we went to Minnesota. My husband gave up his position. We went to Minnesota. Um, and I had a really good job. So we were there for four years. And then we went to Canada. Well, I forgot. I should have asked. How did you yeah. meet your husband? I met him in graduate school. So he was a postdoc when At I Harvard. was just starting. And what's what's his discipline? He's a developmental psychologist. Oh, okay. So he right. studies reading primarily in literacy. Got it. Okay. Yeah. All right, so you were often working, did you work collectively? or We did a little bit. I mean, we spent a year in the middle there in Guatemala, so we worked together there, but mostly we haven't. He works with typical kids and is too, he gets too heartbroken around kids with problems. He does? Yeah. Yeah. You know, for somebody whose parents, you know, weren't sure they wanted you to go, you know, too far away, you've been all over. I have, yeah. I really, I mean, part of it is my husband, we've, you know, we, he came from Toronto, so we were both trying to figure out where on earth we live. And we had talked briefly about, I mean, both both going back to Toronto and coming here, but you obviously couldn't do both at the same time. Yeah. And then, you know, we really wanted to have a family and living here and getting two jobs that wasn't weren't miles away was just impossible. And so we tried to we've 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 lived a lot of different places. Um, and for different, we've always thought, okay, we're staying here, and then something. You have. I wonder. Comes up. So yeah. when, when did the when did the children come? The children where, where came. Were the daughter came in in when we were in uh, Minnesota. Minnesota. Okay. Yeah. So she was born then, and then she was one reason we left. I mean, my husband started saying we need to live in a civilized country. <laughs> we want to go back to Canada. Oh, um, he he meant Canada versus the yeah. U.S. Oh, really. <laughs> So we, we went, we moved to Canada, and at that point, I was very fed up with academics. I, I mean, I had had, we'd had a baby that died. Right you did? My daughter, before my daughter was born. Oh, I didn't know It that. was awful. 
How did you survive that? Well, I was just, I mean, I was depressed. And then I was determined to get pregnant, which career-wise was the absolutely stupidest thing to do. But I just thought, if I don't do this now, I will never do it again. It's too terrifying. And so we, I had two pregnancies in the four years of Minnesota. You well, know, and one, you lost the first yeah. one. Did she die after she was born? Yeah. Oh, so I'm sorry. It was... It was bad. I mean, she was sick all along, the poor baby. But um, so we, then we then had my daughter. My daughter, I had a lot of trouble when I was pregnant. And so was out of, you know, in and out of the hospital. She was fine, yeah. thank God. Yeah. Um, but that was, that put me off, you know, somebody say, I mean, literally I had a, um, the chief of our department at the end of my, third year, which would have been when the year my daughter was born, said, like, I don't know what happened to you. <laughs> I mean, literally, that's what he said to me. It was like, what, you know, you just haven't gotten a grant, you know? And oh. I didn't even apply he, for grants. Did he know what yeah, you've been through knew. personally? He, he knew, knew but yeah. it was just like he forgot. It um, was it was bad. But I think that people, I mean, people are better now, you know? They set, yeah. reset the clock and... But I still think it's, you know, in academics, you're only what you do, yeah. you know. And he, he, they were very disappointed in me. I mean, they really thought that I was going to be a superstar. And I had arrived, you know, under circumstances that were, well, I'd arrived and got going and then had really been thrown off by the two pregnancies. So... Well, he w- but he was right though. Yeah. It just wasn't going to happen under his watch. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, it was. I was. It was a good lesson in that I just was like, all right, forget it. We'll go. And then I took a clinical job in Edmonton when my husband got an endowed chair, and I was like, I'll just be a clinician. But I had a department chair. I was in in a hosp- in a like teaching hospital. Department chair was like, what are you doing? You should be doing research. Really? Yeah, really. And so it turned out I literally applied. There was a newspaper ad for Alberta Mental Health saying, Does anyone want to study children's health? And I, <laughs> yeah, I <do. laughs> mental health. So I applied for it and got money. And then Alberta Heritage Fund, which when, when, the, when they make a lot of money on oil in Alberta, they put it into support for scientists. Yeah, yeah. And so people were like, you could apply for this. So I got, applied for that. And then I applied for the Canadian equivalent of NIH. So I was like, oh, great. This is great. Um, this, and the, yeah. this man who, who said you should be doing research, but you had already gotten sick of that. Why did you listen to Well, him? I liked it. I mean, I had liked the research. I just didn't like the fact that I, I didn't want to be going home every night and waiting for my kids to fall asleep so I could work mm-hmm. over things that I was tense. Yeah. And so what I figured out was I could get up early in the morning before my daughter woke up and I could work for a couple hours and I could get enough done and then I wouldn't have to feel like that at night. So and it be wasn't tense at night. yeah. Okay. And so and then the expectations in Canada were much lower. Civilized. For, yeah. Civilized. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, so you started getting grants in Canada, yeah. and you're studying up there. Um, yeah. What were you learning? What were you figuring out? Yeah, we a lot. I mean, I think at that point, I had I had met Michael Rudder yeah. in Minnesota, and he had I had actually arranged to go for a sabbatical, like a quarter sabbatical, to England to work with him um, when we moved. So I didn't go. 
So he actually, I think due to no understanding of geography, <laughs> came to see me in Edmonton on his way to Detroit, I think. <laughs> of course. Right. <laughs> um, but I got to spend a fair amount of time with him. And then he convinced me we should go to, uh, we got money from the British Council to go to England. So we went on sabbatical. But he and I, I'd start, I started working with him even then. And he was starting the project, which was the first family study of wow. autism. He was doing it with Susan Fulstein, who was in at Hopkins, at Johns Hopkins. And so, and I realized that basically there was no standard diagnosis at that time. I mean, he did too. So there was his diagnosis. There was the U.S., like um, the Autism Society had a diagnosis. Uh, Michael, of, he'd come up with his own. Yeah, he right. had his own diagnostic criteria. The Autism Society, because of RITBO, because of UCLA, had a, had a different set of criteria. And then I had been at TEACH, <laughs> and I knew they were using something completely different. So at that point, Mike was like, he, he was very invested in investigator-based interviews, which are interviews where the person who is asking the question gets the other person to talk and then the co the investigator codes the answer so rather than asking yes no or asking you a, do you pick a b or c i get you to talk and then i interpret what you've said and, okay and code yeah. it and so that was the beginning of the adi which is the parent interview so that was really mike's and then a psychiatrist named Nan lakuda can I, I want to ask this question, because what you had seen early on in, at UCLA, yeah. where you had one child who was really advanced and one who you were struggling to teach, did you think it was possible to get a standardized test? Yeah, I, well, I didn't know. I didn't know. I thought that it was, yes, I thought that it was important to try. And the kids were very different, but they're similar too. I mean, that's what's amazing yeah. about autism is that, and that's a huge issue right now is you know, people that are verbally articulate are in such a different position than somebody who can hardly talk right. or yeah. who has very limited practical skills. Yeah. But then there are things that are shared. So I think I, 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 I guess I thought we, we could do this for autism, but then we also had to know about intellectual disability and language. And so I really spent like the last couple of years at Harvard working on language stuff. And I felt like we need to know more about that. And Mike Rudder was actually one of the first psychiatrists who was willing and interested in that, in sort of cognition and language. So we so we worked on the ADI and that was really mostly the three of us, Mike and Ann Lakuta and me, but other people too. But then it was the advent, I don't know if I've, I probably haven't told you this before, but we, when I was in Canada, we had this incredible media guy in our hospital, and he was like, you can make videotapes. Oh, I want to ask about this. Okay, yeah. keep going, keep going. And so he was like, he had this giant camera, and he was amazing. And I was like, wow, Mike, you know, we could video these kids. And then when we could, we could go back and look at them later and see if we missed things. And, and it was like, well, what are we going to video them doing? And I had learned from Teach the, the sort of teach approach is when a kid comes in the room, you try to make them comfortable, you try to make things predictable, you try to make things make sense, and then you test them. Right. Mike was much more of a psychiatrist of like, don't do that. 
I'm going to talk to the parents and let the kid wander around the room and, and see what he does. And we will see what they're interested in. Yeah, right. we'll see what they do. Um, and so I was really interested in, can we do both? Can we set up context where the kid is comfortable enough so that they're not wandering out of the room, but where we aren't telling them what to do? And then can we make things make more sense gradually? And can we have tasks that we present to the child so that they know what we want from them, or at least they know what the opportunities are, and then gradually we kind of narrow it down a little bit. Yeah. And can we video that so then we have this permanent record? I mean, it, I mean now looking at those old videos, they're not so permanent, but a permanent record of what they're like. So that's where we started the ADOS. Does that also, the video, I mean, does that also allow, you know, much more people can look at the. Yes. You basically have widened your data set at this Absolutely. point, or your data points, because other people can look and say, "Well, I noticed this. Did you notice that?" And yeah. Okay. And then that goes in the in the file yeah. for the the child yeah. as well. Okay. So that was a first. Yeah. So that's what we did, and I literally had a basket of toys in my office in Canada that I used when I was playing with kids. Uh -huh. And some of it was very built on stuff we'd done at Teach, but not necessarily the same task. But it was like, you have to have something somewhat systematic. It can't be total chaos. Yeah, yeah. On the other hand, the kids like different things. So you have to be flexible enough to say, yeah, you really want to sit down and you're going to be moving. Or you like to put stuff in and you don't. Yeah. So that's sort of where we started with the ADOS. I mean, I think people, I just came back from Poland and I, you know, mostly I, I get grief about the ADOS in the United States, but it was amazing to be there. And then people coming up and saying, you know, Slovakia is getting the ADOS, you know, Latvia is getting the ADOS. I mean, I think it's been, it's, it's been useful, not necessarily in the ways that we planned. I mean, the way we planned was to be able to see if the diagnoses were uniform right. across you know, Johns Hopkins and Edmonton, Alberta, and the UK, and across the various sites in the UK. Um, and then we were also interested in like sex differences. Right. And so we could see that. And I think that was important and people do use it like that. I mean, it, it has provided like a base of sort of standards. But I think clinically the usefulness is you spend 45 minutes doing stuff that you already know how to do. So I'm, I don't have to think about what toys should I get or what should I do next because I memorized it. Yeah. But I get to see the kid do these different things and especially with the younger kids, my parents get to be there too. Yeah. And so they can see what I'm trying to do, what the kid does, which often surprises them, but what they don't do and when do they do it. And we've got this shared base of knowledge. It seems like you were, as you said, you're originally going to get, um, you wanted to see if like the, what happened in this part of the country, this part of the world, the diagnoses were similar. Yeah. But what actually happened is it became a way to diagnose a child. Yeah. And what, why, why do you get grief about it in the U.S. still? Well, I think people, people feel like if they don't know how to do it, they feel like they don't want to have to ask somebody else to do something. They feel like they can make a diagnosis faster. People worry that there are, there are long waiting lists. Now, I mean, I, I don't think the ADOS is the problem of the waiting list. I think it's not having skilled technicians. Or I mean, I think it's yeah. developmental pediatricians, psychologists, child psychiatrists, um, 
all can do this, but there aren't enough of any of us because we all lose money. Yeah. You know, and so, but people will say, well, they're waiting for the ADOS. You know, I think now because some insurance companies are asking for ADOSs, you know, that also makes people mad. I mean, there's an article in JAMA Pediatrics, I think it's this month, where a bunch of developmental pediatricians made diagnoses without an ADOS, referred kids for ADOSs, got the ADOSs back, and didn't change their diagnosis. So they're saying, we don't need the ADOS. Well, what was the difference between the two? Yeah, Did they say? Was, well, I mean, they don't say. Uh-huh. And also, they, I mean, they already made their diagnosis. So really, this is a study of do developmental pediatricians change their diagnoses? No. Right. Um, the other thing is, what were they doing in the time that they saw the kids? Because a lot of developmental pediatricians, some do the ADOS, but mostly some of them, they take pieces of it. You know, and th- there is a question of like, could you do something faster? Faster meaning um, with less of a wait to yeah. see? Oh, no. no. Could you do something faster? Like instead of 45 minutes, could you do it in 15 minutes? So I feel like we should lobby to say, look, you guys, these kids, I mean, they do not need an ADOS every three months. They need an ADOS, you know, at the start. And then it's really nice to have it follow up, but you don't even need it every year. You know, it's up to the family yeah. and who, what kind of information are you getting? But you ought to be able to have a, a, an hour of someone attending to you and listening to you and watching you. Um, but I wanted to ask about that too, because, you know, most of your career has been about diagnosis, it seems like. And, yeah. and, and I want to ask about the importance of a diagnosis, um, because we we're talking about Booker. Jen, yeah. Jen said that, you know, she had been to see people and they were just like, Hey, too bad we don't we don't know. But yeah. you were the first person who said, um, "Hey, there's something that we can. Here's a diagnosis, and there's something that we can do." And yeah. she said she never forgot it. Actually, gave yeah. her hope. So, what is I want to ask about that? Like, what does a diagnosis mean to both families and autistic people themselves? I think it just gives. I mean, it gives us access to more information, and it gives you a sense that I mean, first of all, you didn't do this. I mean, no one did this. This right. is a difference. You know, it is a difference that comes from our brain and we don't exactly understand it, but we know quite a lot about it. So it gives us strategies too for what are we what are we gonna try to do when things are hard? What can we do to support a kid who's doing well? So I think I think it's a starting point, you know, and it's and again it's shared information and it's not I mean, because autism is so various, it doesn't tell you everything about somebody, but it's a start. You know, and just to begin to think, like, why did that happen? You know, right. That you know? so for parents, it's sort of like my my child is uh, not developing as quickly as we thought. They they don't have the language we thought, yeah. and then they get a diagnosis and they go, okay, now I know what's yeah. happening. And same for adults. So yeah. it's part of understanding who you are. Yeah. Yeah. And that there's other people that have same or similar Community. overlapping issues. Yeah, it's not just you. Yeah. Yeah. So the, do you think that's kind of like your? I mean, I don't want to say legacy, but kind of your legacy is this, you know, the way that's, I think that is your largest impact on the field. Yeah, it, I, I, I think that's true. I mean, I also am very um, invested in the longitudinal, in our longitudinal study, but I think that that is, has less broad effect. Yeah. Uh, I also wanted to ask about um, the Lancet Commission. Yeah. Right. So can we just tell me why that was important to do mm-hmm. and a little bit of the history of why it came together? Yeah. So... 
I think that the I think Lance had decided that it was time. I mean, who who knows what goes on in the minds of Lance, but that it was time to do something about autism that was less piecemeal uh-huh. than what they had done, and and so they had asked me to put it together. They wanted it to be international, and 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 that was really the only criteria they really gave me was they wanted an international group and they wanted to check. They had sort of. I mean, they really didn't veto anybody, but they had ideas of how we should put this group together. So interdisciplinary. Um, and and then I think the group decided, and partly I, th- I think it was really my impetus, that rather than focus on long-term, we wanted to focus on short-term. Five years, right. Yeah. yeah. Because I think the idea was that our field has so many groups and a, and a big investment. I mean, NIH certainly is very invested, or NIMH, in long-term things. I mean, there are short-term issues, but on the whole, that's where they're, the, they feel like we need to understand basic biology, right. m- biological mechanisms. And it's clear, I mean, I think 50 years ago, we thought, wow, we're going to get some simple answers here. Yeah. But that is not, but it isn't going to make an a quick difference for the people that are alive today. So we decided we were really going to focus on that. It's like, what can we do now? We had a committee of about 30 people, and then some of my staff and some other people helped in the end, you know, making figures or tracking down yeah. information. And, um, but we, I mean, we, we, what I tried to do, and I think I did not do this perfectly, was just represent different disciplines, different countries, you know, different um, continents, um, different perspectives. Um, So that was my goal, you know, and people from different ethnicities, and then some parents, um, some self-advocates, you know, so. So when when it was done, the committee of 30 plus, right, you were happy with the product, as they say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think Lancet, you know, Lancet wanted to support it, and they sort of pooped out in the end. So I think that we could have it could have had more sort of power to it if they, like they are making paper copies, but we haven't seen them and it's been oh, I see. like yeah. a year. And the paper copies aren't the answer to all things, but I think that the the process was definitely interesting. And I think we came up with some things that if people would would take seriously would be helpful. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Oh, so I mean, I read it. It was yeah. a fascinating read and yeah. I thought there were a lot of really smart things yeah. in there. Um, but the thing that the the thing that caught the zeitgeist, if you will, mm-hmm. is profound autism. Yeah. Right. Was that a yeah. surprise? No. I mean, I think we were hoping it wouldn't be the only thing people remembered, and and I don't think we expected the adamant negativity from some of the self advocate communities. Yeah. I mean, we thought people might not be super happy about it, but because we had self advocates on the committee, and the first thing one of them said was, "Well, what about me? I don't have it." You know, is this going to hurt me? Oh, I don't have profound autism. Yeah, I don't yeah. have profound autism. So why are you talking about this? And and but I think that it, I think in that case we convinced him. You know, it was like you don't. You know, but we need to be careful that we don't forget about these people because it's so much easier to talk to you, and so much easier. I mean, you have a blog. You know, yeah. You it's so much easier for you to communicate with these other people. And in the meanwhile, there are laws being passed that really hurt people that have more severe needs. Um, and we need to be careful that they don't just get forgotten. You so. mean like laws around housing? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But the thing, so when I, I read it, I thought, okay, well, here's somebody who is saying 
Autism is a spectrum, of course. There's lots of needs here, but we cannot forget this one group. Yeah. They, they are the most needful. Yeah. They cannot advocate for themselves. Let's call it profound autism and let's see what happens. Yeah. And I thought, okay, well, this might be some sort of um, progress one way or another. But yeah. then, you know, not long afterward, Liz Pelicano put out her paper and it yeah. said, we disagree with this. And yeah. I thought, well, we're just going to have more fighting now. Yeah. Is that I what know. it feels like? I think, I mean, the fighting is hard. I feel terrible about the fighting because I think... It doesn't help anybody. Yeah. You know, it does not help to not be united on the fact that everybody needs help. And it's it's complicated. I mean, I think we're, I'm, I'm part of a small group where we're trying to see, like, where do we go next? And it's not simple, you know. I mean, I think that, you know, Alison Singer, who is very adamant behind profound autism, is like, why don't we just bring Asperger's back? But Asperger's didn't work. Yeah. And I think what we're trying to do is figure out, well, if we have other, you know, different categories, what would they be? Because my, I mean, my general feeling as a clinician is, you know, there are people in the middle, you know, there are people that are very skilled and articulate, and that includes as many of the self-advocates, but also often from really quite financially supported backgrounds. Right. Um, and there are people that are equally articulate, but are not, as, has, have not had as many resources or don't have as many resources, who are really struggling. And people who are very bright, but who have other problems that really limit their ability to be independent. And I don't want to, I mean, we spend, I've, I spent part of my life fighting for SSI for bright autistic people that cannot support themselves. And if we had a better society, maybe they would. But at this point, you know, they can't bring in enough money to pay for bills and they could not manage living on their own. And so what do we, what do we do with them? <laughs> no, I mean, we don't want to say things about them that imply that they are that they don't need help because yeah. they do yeah you know I mean I, I hope we didn't by pick, picking out one group we didn't screw everything up for everybody else well it doesn't feel know? I mean it doesn't feel resolved right yeah. I, I think no, there's a long way to resolved. go still it, I, it feels like okay so 50 years ago when you first started this maybe the biggest hurdle to the field was I don't know um, maybe it might even been diagnosis back yeah then, it was right? I mean I remember um, oh my god Denny Cantwell who was a professor here saying in a sub in a, a study section you can't you know there's no rule it's not a reliable diagnosis so how could we possibly fund this right and you know? that's been sort of taken care of yeah. and do you think this is the hurdle now the biggest hurdle is sort of how do I, we move forward yeah. with this with this spectrum I hope not I hope not what might be the biggest hurdle then like, what's the biggest hurdle in front of the field? Well, I, th I, I mean, I do think you're right. I think the, the biggest hurdle is how do we have support services for everybody that are going to be quite different? And how do we mobilize what, it, what has been defined as a primarily medical problem yeah. where many of the solutions are not medical? Yeah. They really are social. Yeah. And how do we do that? And I think that our, you know, in... In, in our culture in the United States, we don't do that well. So I think that there are other similar problems where we have not figured out what to do. And, and that's, I think that's the challenge. I yeah. think it does, 
I think that the self-advocates are right that to emphasize that this is a medical condition is does not get us where we need to go. But I also think that we need to acknowledge that there are huge individual differences and also that there are people that cannot speak for themselves and that often the most appropriate person to speak for them are parents, not, not a self-advocate who really doesn't uh, know them. Yeah. I want to ask one more thing. I'm, yeah. I'm uh, already going over an hour, but uh, mentoring, because I know I know that's important to you. Like yeah. I think you've had some good mentors in your I career. I have. I have had one. Oh, both mentors for me. Yes. I've had incredible mentors myself, and I have had wonderful graduate students. So between the two of them, <laughs> I sit. But you, you feel like because you had good mentors that it's important to bring along the next generation and everything else. Absolutely. And there's, I mean, there's just nothing except have, probably having your own family that is as good as having a really good graduate student or postdoc. I mean, they are wonderful and they make everything better. I mean, they, I mean, all of the things like the ADAS and the ADI and all the things we've done have been group efforts where people are like, oh my gosh, that doesn't work and let's try that. And I think, I think having this incredible group, I have been so lucky to have this incredible group around me. And then I also did have people like Mike Brudder and Eric Schopler um, you know, and Roger Brown, even, you know, above me, you know, doing somewhat the same thing. Yeah. Who helped bring to you me. along. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's all I had. Okay. Thank <laughs> you so much, so much for doing this. Wasn't that nice? Wasn't she nice? I walked out of her house and thought about that conversation for the rest of my day, easily. So a big thank you to Kathy for having me into your home for this interview. This podcast will be archived at spectrumnews.org. The next episode will be out June 1st. And a reminder that you can find us on Twitter, where our handle is at Spectrum. You can tell us what you thought of this podcast or actually anything we do here at Spectrum. Our theme song was written and performed by Chris Collinwood. And that's it. I will talk to you on the next one. And I'll let the music... Play us out. Both of my parents, actually, my mother's uh, grandmother came to visit from New Mexico, broke her hip, and never left.